uh, I so much appreciate um, he's going to address me here that uh, Mike's teaching last week uh, on church leadership and it is truly uh, a daunting uh, list of qualifications uh, that you know frankly I don't feel worthy of uh, that recognition um, and I so much appreciate all the encouragement that I've received from many of you um, this past week and in, in uh, um, and I want to reiterate some of the things that Mike said, or just a couple of things. One is please be praying for the leadership of the church, the elders and deacons, because uh, we truly need your support and your, uh, your prayers. But don't think this is somehow an exclusive list. It, it does apply to everybody, and it's something that all of us should be striving for. Um, and, and I think it's uh, particularly men, but it's instructive for, for ladies as well, those things that are applicable to ladies, uh, that that's the kind of, of character that each of us should be seeking um, and that none of us really fully ever attain, uh, but uh, it's a good goal. Uh, I think maybe back in March as we kind of do this, Mike does most of the teaching, but every once in a while I'm honored to, to say a few things. Uh, and back in March we started a series about how God is the issue um, and about how bringing God back into the conversation, back into our culture, really. Uh, And I'd like to start today with a passage out of 1 Corinthians 5, uh, starting there at verse 9, where Paul said, I wrote you in a letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean by that that you should not associate with immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters. For if you did disassociate, you would have to go out of the world. But actually what I meant was I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with such a person. Uh, For what have I to do with judging the unbelievers? Uh, But don't you judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves, that man who previously in the passage had his father's wife. That was the context of that. Now, whether you've sent your children to uh, private school or public school or you've homeschooled your children. You know, this isn't probably the advice that you've given your children. You know, go ahead, kids, hang out with the gang members and the drug dealers and the promiscuous girls, uh, unless they call themselves Christians. You probably wouldn't find yourself saying those things. Uh, So what did Paul mean here? Uh, well, I think I would suggest that what he's saying to us is that uh, yes, the Corinthian believers and us today is, you know, we really don't have the option of disengaging from the world and going off as we promise our children to do once we reach that age where somebody's thinking nursing home, we're going to go to the Black Hills of, you know, out there and, and just email in for money. Uh, uh, to avoid that, that fate, uh, we really don't have that as an option. 
Um, we have rather, as Christians, a mission, or better, a commission, commission uh, to, uh, to go, to teach, and to baptize, as we will this afternoon. In this little series on God is the issue that's spread out over several months, we've tried to explore why it's important that we bring God back into the conversation and the spirit of love that must necessarily temper our zeal. Uh, the last time we talked about this, and no illusions that you have a clue as to what we talked about last time, but the last time we talked about um, the rhetoric of Jesus and how he himself refused to allow his questioners to frame the issue, but rather when he was given a tough question, he simply reframed the question to get the conversation back to God. Um, and uh, today, uh, what we hope to do is deal with some specific contemporary issues and how we might respond in order to get the issue back to God on terra firma, a ground that we can defend if we will only seize it. Um, and to do that, we need to take uh, counsel from the Lord Jesus Christ, where he says in Matthew 10, Behold... I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so, therefore, be shrewd as serpents, but innocent as doves. Now, we talked some time ago about having the heart of God. We talked about innocence and love. So, today, we talk shrewd. Uh, We've got to take a look at our situation. For those outside the church, and probably for some inside... Christian folk appear like the authors of those swimming pool warning signs composed undoubtedly by killjoy lawyers, uh, which say, no diving, no running, no pets, no food, no drink, no children, no pushing, no splashing, no dunking, no spitting, no towel whipping, no toys, and, of course, no fun. Uh, Except to the world, our sign reads... No drinking, no smoking, no drugs, no sex, no homos, no tolerance, no choice, no diversity, no separation of church and state, and, of course, no fun. (laughs) Now, you know, we all know each other pretty well here, and, and, you know, we know we don't agree with that perception, do we? I mean, we all agree that we can have fun sometimes, don't we, at least? But, you know, that's kind of the problem, is that, um, you know, there are some valid convictions there, but a lot of us would say, you know, that's really what we need to be doing. We need to be fighting those causes. Um, and the culture in general perceives us, and remember, for many, perception is reality. Uh, they perceive us as opposing just about anything that involves fun or liberty. Um, And as a result, we have not been terribly effective at communicating with the culture. We've not been able to get their attention so that we can teach, so that we can baptize many. Um, The language that the world hears us saying is basically, thou shalt not ease, uh, which, frankly, they ain't listening to. Uh, We're marginalized and categorized as the religious right 
will notice my left hand because you're in the audience, right? Uh, learned that somewhere. Uh, but uh, and our, our, our view really doesn't count much within the culture. Uh, in fact, we ourselves, we perceive ourselves as opposing everything. We are playing on defense on the rhetorical playing field just about all the time so that we're not in control of the debate and our offense never really gets going. Uh, we have bought in to the culture's perception of ourselves. Now, in Matthew 13, there's a parable. It's about a farmer who discovers that in the newly planted wheat field, somebody has sown in some tares, or weeds, I take it. And so the servants come to him and say, Master, shouldn't we tear out those weeds? And he says, no, no, leave the tares be, and when the, the, uh, the, the crop is, has sufficiently grown, we'll destroy them then. Um, his concern was not primarily the weeds, but rather the harvest. Um, and while Jesus' primary application, which he explains later in this passage, is people, there's a similar application that can be made to issues that are necessary to reach people. Uh, we Christians don't seem to learn the lesson well in applying this to our culture. Christian activists, whether active or passive, are so intent on stamping out every flicker of evil that we spend the bulk of our efforts pulling cultural tares rather than cultivating the weed of our society for the harvest, which we should know is the Great Commission. Uh, therefore, we've got to turn from a negative to a positive message so that we can earn a reputation as advocates rather than obstructionists. Uh, to do this, we've got to do what we've never done before. Uh, I'm going to suggest some approaches and activities from which you and I have usually shied away. Um, in reality, I can now see that this is simply what we're all called to do. Follow the example of Jesus. It's time to stop reacting to and start reframing the issues the rhetoric of the opposition, just as Jesus did. So instead of objecting to, we need to become advocates for, hold on to your hats or your seats or whatever you got, things like diversity, tolerance, free speech, separation of church and state, taking care of the poor, and equality, just to name a few of the evils that we've often attacked. Now, when we hear of those words, instead of thinking, well, those are code words and concepts I have to counter and destroy, we've got to look at them instead as opportunities to win over those folks who speak the contemporary language but yet aren't stuck in concrete in their positions, the mushy middle. Now, before I'm lynched, let me explain by example or two. The the militant homosexuals have essentially hijacked the civil rights movement. And a key element in that, uh, in that movement was the expansion of the word, of the meaning of the word, diversity, 
to go beyond ethnicity to uh, sexual orientation. Uh, because that term has been ingrained in our culture, it's here to stay, at least for a while. And so we've got to use it to communicate to the culture by changing its meaning to support and carry our message. Now, we're going to talk about that particular issue in just a little bit, but, you know, really this is the only way to move the debate back to our playing field, that God is, in fact, the, the, the issue. Uh, and so that allows us to make some progress rather than retreating into our defensive positions. So being right is important. The truth is important, but it's not enough. If our right message is ignored or misunderstood, being right doesn't do a whole lot of good in terms of the overall culture. In a cultural perspective, a concept must, uh, in, in order to communicate these concepts, we've got to learn the idea that the other side has learned very well. It's called linkage. Linkage. And let me give you an example. Um, years ago, I, uh, we went to a conference somewhere and, uh, at a church, I think, and we pulled up next to uh, a VW bus. You all know what you associate those with. And it was P. Green. Okay? Nice. It was refurbished and a nice P. Green bus. And in the window, there was a sticker that's, well, let me, let me before I get to that, you've heard of the, the, the phrase, visualize world peace, right? Well, in the window was a sticker that says, visualize world peace. Anybody get it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it was a real, real hoot for me because the, the, the bus, I mean, the, the VW, uh, whatever that thing is, I mean, it, it made you think of world peace. And every time I hear the formula, you know, the thing about world peace, I think of the latter. Now, that's linkage in a funny sort of a way. At least I think it is. Another one is um, you, you've all seen the fish symbols on the back of people's cars and in stickers and that sort of thing. And they usually had something like ichthus in the middle of them. And then you started to see those with legs and Darwin in the middle. That was linkage. And then our side came back with the bigger fish swallowing the Darwin fish with truth in the middle. Okay? That's all part of linkage, of uh, grabbing somebody's attention and helping them understand what the issues are about. Well, I'm going to have Dawson and Timothy pass out some handouts right now because we're going to get to some of these specific issues here in just a moment. Uh, Linkage, if you want here, this is just... So that if you, uh, you can have a list of the topics we're going to talk about, and if you hear anything that makes any sense that you might want to use in a conversation, then you can jot it down. About linkage, it's a key step in reframing the issue. And we want to learn how, perhaps, to create linkage by redefining cultural terms, whether in a public debate or in a one-on-one conversation. So we've, all, we've got to maintain not only the actual moral high ground, but also the perceived moral high ground if we are to affect our culture. So remember, remember, our goal is to use the rhetoric of Jesus to change perceptions so that we can get back to advocating God, which is our issue, 
rather than just arguing as obstructionists about worldliness, their issue, primarily in the rhetorical playing field. We're not at the point where we can use these arguments terribly effectively in the legislatures and the courts, but maybe if we start using it in the culture, it'll become more acceptable. The first one we want to talk about is violence in schools. There's obviously a couple of camps here. Uh, Their goal is to control guns, basically. And the opposite group, and, you know, I've got to admit, I'm not an NRA member. I've handled weapons in the past, but I'm not even a hunter, and some of you are. You know, some of you may be members of the NRA. That's fine. Uh, but, um, you know, the traditional counter-argument to gun control is obviously the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, which is recently upheld even by our Supreme Court. Uh, you know, and that's great, but both sides miss the issue. Ours is a unique third position because what we can say is America pretends that God is irrelevant to education, but we're shocked when kids act like there is no God or no moral absolute. So violence is simply a symptom of one's beliefs or God's concept. Kids are just acting out what they're taught by uh, either the media or by the silence of the culture about God and the violence that fills the vacuum. Both pro-gun and anti-gun lobbies, frankly, miss the point. Uh, Arming law-abiding citizens will not prevent another Columbine, nor will disarming the citizens. Uh, Despite much stricter gun control laws in Germany, uh, they've had plenty of school staff and students gunned down uh, four times in two and a half years it happened there. Our argument is that in the big picture, Columbine was not caused by guns, but by censorship of religious speech, because one's worldview will determine one's behavior. So we, we, we create rhetorical linkage between God and the gun debate to at least make people think about the ultimate cause of the problem. Next one might be hate crimes, okay? Uh, Their goal, they're trying to get us to accept any immoral lifestyle. The traditional counter-argument would be, well, you know, almost all violent crimes are motivated by hate. We don't need a special law. We simply need to enforce the law that we have. But what we can say is, you know, whenever hate crimes are mentioned... Uh, instead of disparaging the concept of hate crime, uh, we should talk about crimes against people of faith, such as those Christians who died at Columbine, uh, died specifically because they stood up for Christ. That creates linkage between God and their issue, which they absolutely don't want to talk about. Uh, Any attempt to keep God out of the debate is clearly hypocritical. Why should we discriminate against people who fear God? Um, But then we can step back and say, why is a hate crime wrong? This gives us a forum to make the point that hate crimes are just symptoms 
of a godless culture in which there's no rational basis to, for respect rather than hate. Human life has no inherent value because we're simply products of chance and time rather than the creatures made in the image of God. It gives us a perfect opportunity to talk about that if we'll just think before we engage our tongues. How about viewpoint tolerance? Okay, Their goal is to break down all moral barriers. Okay, Our goal is to redefine the term back to our issue. Uh, what we can say is, if you seek tolerance of viewpoints, you really need to be tolerant of our religious viewpoint, of our religious speech. But instead, you are selective and you promote censorship. Anyone who calls for tolerance and then tries to exclude religious speech just because they disagree is anything but tolerant. George Orwell called this doublespeak in, 19, in his book, 1984, which seems like a long time ago when I read that, thinking that was the future. Now, they may counter, you said all speech, but you censor free expression with this so-called pornography issue. And to which we got to say, hey, I plead guilty of trying to protect children. But we quickly move back to the point. But you lack tolerance to promote censorship of certain religious speech. Do we as Americans believe that such intolerance is acceptable? Uh, we've got to use the concept and wide acceptance of free speech to get back to our issue. The linkage here is created by redefining tolerance as synonymous with free speech, which includes religious speech. That gets us back to our issue. So how about diversity? Um, again, they simply want to take control and use the civil rights movement for their purposes. Now, we could disparage the term, uh, you know, and you hear it all the time on talk radio. But why not say, yeah, how about ethnic and religious diversity every time they use the word? We come back with that. And diversity, like some other things, is here, with us, is here to stay for a while. Uh, so why don't we redefine it and get it back to the issue? Um, that will expose their agenda primarily being motivated by sexual orientation. They want to apply the word just to gain acceptance. But by adding religious to the term, we get back to God. And they might come back at us and say, well, okay, what about ethnic and cultural diversity? You send those missionaries all over the world to change cultural practices, and you oppose the cultural diversity in your own country, you Christians. Well... What we can say then is we can be reasonable. We can say, yeah, you know, there is a place for ethnic diversity. There's nothing wrong with going to a German fest or a Mexican festival, uh, you know, traveling to other countries and experiencing their cultures, or even adopting to the culture like Hudson Taylor did in China so that he could reach those people by wearing their garb. Um, but we then need to ask the question, does diversity mean that cultural practices trump God? 
And some might say, well, if it's their culture, it's, of course it does. Well, if so, cannibalism is simply a cultural diet. Opiate dens are just cultural recreation. The caste system of India is just a cultural social division, not to mention the cultural preferences against Jews in Nazi Germany and against blacks in 19th century America. If culture reigns in our culture of diversity, all of that is acceptable. If, on the other hand, one declares that any of those practices is wrong, then there really has to be some higher standard than culture. We Christians call that standard God. What do you call it? See, you really have to try to get them to think about their own presuppositions. That would be our goal. Now, the issue of racism, we thought was pretty much over. Haven't heard a lot about it until this present uh, presidential election. So it's been resurrected for a number of reasons. And let me say here, I think it's just as wrong to vote against a man because he's black as it is to vote for a man just because he's black. Okay? Uh, Let's look at substance. But it's going to come up, and you're going to hear more and more about the issue of racism anytime somebody says something that's just a little bit out the politically correct uh, boundaries. Um, And, of course, what they want to do is they want to link conservative Christians with the KKK. That's their goal. Um, What do we do? Well, we can ask the question and maybe stir up a little interest by saying, well, what gives you the idea that racism is wrong? I believe it's wrong because of what the Bible says. Because God sees no difference. He's not a respecter of persons or color. In the Proverbs it says that to show partiality and judgment isn't good. In fact, God was the first to come up with the concept of equal opportunity. He's an equal opportunity blesser and punisher. In Romans 2, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. And Paul says in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, this gets us back on the right side of the the racial issue. We can then add that according to God, you know, there really is just one race, human we all we look different, but why do we keep talking about those differences? I know sometimes you have to, but a little a little caution here. Do you find yourself describing certain people as being of a particular race? I just encourage you to think about do I need to do that? Sometimes it is necessary. If you're filling out a police report, you might have to do that. But is it really important to the conversation? to refer to somebody by their race. Okay? Um, Again, we've got to seize the opportunity of this particular issue and get people back to thinking about why is racism wrong? 
Um, another one that uh, came up several years ago and now has resurrected uh, is the issue of corporate greed. Uh, and what they want to do is they want to highlight the evil of the capitalist system and say, you're a conservative Christian, therefore you're part of that system. And Yeah, yeah, I, I believe in capitalism. It's obviously not the only system that, that exists on earth, and it, it doesn't appear in its pure form probably anywhere anymore. Uh, but several years ago, we had several uh, large companies, Enron, MCI, WorldCom, Tyco, and some others, who had major problems with people, well, here in Topeka, with uh, our little, what is it, Western Resources. We had major problems with people getting, you know, failing the pig test, as lawyers call it. You know, they just took too much. Um, Now, so what do we say about that? We use it as an opportunity. You see, business students have been taught for at least the last 30 years a form of ethics or morality That excludes God. Now, why should we expect anything else? The philosophical underpinning of capitalism uh, is the writing of a Scottish economist named Adam Smith. And in the the 18th century, he wrote that there's an invisible hand of self-interest that guides businessmen to do what's not only best for oneself, but also for the benefit of society. In other words, he makes a better product That'll help more people because he wants to make more money. Now, greed was plentiful in Smith's day. uh, But in that day, there was a certain sense of revivalism that tempered all relations. Today, the problem stems from a legally godless culture. The society that we live in today seeks to please me first through material acquisition because there simply is no higher goal to many people. A people that mocks the notion that the love of money is the root of all evil tends to idolize wealth instead. Um, So in other words, we can argue that when we take God out of the education of our business leaders, we are left only with self-interest. And unless the corporate executives learn from their educational system and their culture that God holds them morally responsible for their business decisions, we're going to have more Enrons and more greedy oil companies. We should point out to our opponents, while there is nothing wrong with making an honest dollar or with wealth, for that matter, the Christian view of business requires one to look beyond one's self-interest to those in need with generosity. But education that excludes God will breed illegal and immoral corporate greed. So we link, we link corporate greed with godless education. Finally, uh, obviously an issue for the last seven years, I guess, that uh, comes up regularly still, With terrorism, uh, again, another opportunity. Uh, And, of course, what they want to do is uh, use the word fundamentalist to link people of like mind together. And we are the fundies. 
All right? At least that's one way to describe people who believe that the Bible is true. Uh, and so it's guilt by association, I suppose, and the association is merely in, in, in a phrase. Uh, how can we counter that notion? Well, we can say a person's view of God will determine how he or she treats others. And we use this as an opportunity to shift the emphasis from religious, uh, religion in general to specific beliefs. Uh, and with that shift, we link religious terrorists with atheists. Okay? If one says, if one's God says, kill the infidel, one might just be predisposed to violence, don't you think? Uh, on the other hand, if one believes there is no God, like Hitler and the communists, you know, genocide and violence are perfectly okay because there is no moral absolute to condemn it. But what we counter is, you know, our God says love your enemies, do good to them that hate you. Those that follow the biblical God are not likely going to be the terrorists. And that reminds me of a, a little joke. And I hope I haven't said this one before here. <laughs> but... Uh, um, there was a professor of higher learning. And he happened to be an atheist. And he was going to an atheist convention um, and um, where they would talk about how there couldn't possibly be a God. And uh, traveling through a, a foreign city or a city that he was not familiar with had some car trouble. And uh, so he decided to take the next exit, not knowing where he was going, and took the exit, and his car sputtered to a halt in a very run-down, dark neighborhood. Wondering what to do, he looked around, and all of a sudden caught his eye with a backdrop far off of a... Of a of a sole lamppost out there, three or four bulky, rather muscular young men, the silhouettes of them, approaching him with what, a, what appeared to be brick-like things in their hands. Now, do you suppose he was a bit relieved at all to find that these were members of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes coming from a Bible study? as opposed to somebody with another intent. You know, all these things affect how we approach culture. Everything that we do, everything that we approach, uh, all the issues uh, ultimately have their source in God. What we've struggled with as a church in general is fear. We don't want to be considered the fundy, the kook. Uh, we're afraid of God. We want to be seen as relevant, as hip. So we talk about the issues, but we, 
we tend to talk in their terms. And what we've been talking about today is trying to get back to the issue that the only issue that's going to change hearts. You know, we might be able to win some arguments and, and having good ideas that don't necessarily mention God are fine. You know, the marketplace of good ideas is, is, is a powerful way to influence people. But until the church gets back to their regular acceptance and lack of, 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 of fear over this issue of God, we can't really ex- expect things to change much. So I hope that some of these things will be helpful in your conversations. Uh, don't have arguments. Have constructive dialogue with people and ask them to think about where everything starts. Let's pray. Father, we give praise to you, and we want to thank you for this privilege that you've given us together. We pray, Lord, that um, you would continue to work in each of our lives, and that, Lord, you would bring back to each one of us, myself included, Lord, just the boldness to bring the issue back to you. Father, we, uh, we don't recognize these opportunities always. Sometimes we, we think back and, and, uh, and see an opportunity we miss. But, Lord, help us not to be discouraged. Help us to uh, take advantage of everyone we do recognize and lift up your name in a constructive and insightful, intelligent, but loving way. We give you all the praise and glory, Lord, and pray that you would continue to work within this body to draw us closer together and closer to you. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.